It is the eve, the exciting eve of our rediscovery of South America. The next morning, and the excitement continues, for before us lies the harbor of Rio de Janeiro. As amazing to every newcomer, the world over, there's no setting like this for a city. There's no setting like this for a, for, 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 for a city. They are organic to favela environments. They are not about people who come from the outside proposing change to the favela. But before us lies the harbor of Rio de Janeiro. Rio de Janeiro. Suddenly there were these voices coming from young people living in favelas saying, let us speak. We want to say who we are. We're tired of someone else coming here and reporting who we are. We want to talk for ourselves. For the people of Rio have the ocean at their front door. That's what art can do. Uh, it can enable a sort of wider understanding of the very detail of what that loss or that suffering or that violence is. Unless we can understand the detail, we can't really find those solutions. The world over, there's no setting like this for a, for a, for a city. Welcome to the second episode in our LSC Review of Books podcast series on Brazil. I'm Amy Mollett. In this podcast, we spend time in Rio's hillsides to explore how two grassroots movements are shaking things up in the city's favelas. Later in the programme, we'll also hear from Paul Heritage, Professor of Drama and Performance at Queen Mary, University of London. Cheryl Brumley met with Paul at the Criset y Viver Circus School in central Rio to talk about art in the city's periphery. Sandra Jovchelovich, Director of the Social and Cultural Psychology Programme at the LSE, and researcher Jackie Prego Hernandez tell us about their new book, Underground Sociabilities, Identity, Culture and Resistance in Rio's Favelas. In her three-week journey to Brazil, Cheryl Brumley was also able to talk to some key players in Rio's public security and NGO scene. These voices joined Sandra and Jackie in discussing the transformative effects that two grassroots NGOs are having on favela communities. LSC professor Sandra Dubchelovich is a Brazilian-born academic with a long-standing interest in the Brazilian public sphere. Along the way, she took note of an emerging set of Rio-based NGOs gaining traction in the city's most deprived areas. I was very intrigued by new experiences of social development that were taking place in favela environments. Sandra was struck most by two organizations in particular, Afro-Rege and Central Unicastas Favelas, or CUFA. Calling them NGOs is slightly misleading, as they have a range of functions that extend beyond the normal third sector remit. They are part social movements, part business and cultural enterprises, and their staff are partly social workers and partly activists. They focus on empowering young people through activities like music, dance, and sports. Both organizations have strong territorial links to a favela in the city, Kufa and Madureira, and Aferregue and Vijario Geral. Afro-Rage and Kufa were very much at the forefront of these experiences. They were 
favela born organizations. They were bringing together new social actors, young black favela dwellers, to mark uh, a new kind of relationship with the Brazilian public sphere. And above all, they seem to be extremely efficient in producing positive social change in favela environments. In their new book, Underground Sociabilities, Identity, Culture and Resistance in Rio de Janeiro's Favelas, Sandra and co-author Jackie Priego Hernandez show how the methods adopted by these two NGOs sharply contrast to those usually found in social development. Firstly, they don't just think of communities as a collective. Afro-Regi and Kufa pay attention to the individual identities within communities. In their work, there is not, not only the collective, but the very particular individual who's there and whose life is worth of investing in. That's Jackie. She goes on to say that because many of the leaders of these organizations come from the favela, they are more likely to strike a chord with young people in those communities. There is someone who cares about you, someone who has undergone perhaps the same experiences you are undergoing, who has been successful in overcoming them, who serves as a role model for you, and Mm -hmm. who can offer a a different pathway. Afarega and Kufa also challenges the stigma and demonization that follows favela dwellers by taking their peripheral culture and making it mainstream. Music, graffiti, theater, or even circus groups grew and claimed their space in society and started being themselves without the need for translators to speak for them. That's Silvia Ramos, a leading expert in Brazil on issues of crime and policing. She consulted Sandra and Jackie on their book, and has worked closely with both Afarega and Kufa in the past. They started to be their own mediators in front of the press, in front of the government, and in front of researchers that sought to understand what happened in favelas. Suddenly there were these voices coming from young people living in favelas, saying, let us speak, we want to say who we are, we are tired of someone else coming here and reporting who we are, we want to talk for ourselves. To understand how Afarege, Kufa, and groups like them surfaced, and why their work has been so transformative, we have to go back not too far in time, to a Rio where the hills were alive with gunfire, and residents in the Moros, or hills, were caught in the crossfire between the state and the drug trade. The legacy of that violence still reverberates through the city today. For over 25 years, all favelas in Rio were dominated by illegal armed groups of drug dealers. They controlled who came in and came out of the favelas, had dominion over the territory, and were masters of life and death for the people living in those places. And this situation occurred in every favela of the city, including the ones close to high-end neighborhoods like Ipanema, Copacabana, and Botafogo. In the 1970s through to the 1980s, the increase of drug trafficking in Rio found a territorial route in the city's favelas. This occupation of narco-traffic contributed to a sharp rise in homicides decades on in the 1990s, especially amongst young people. Exchange of gunfire between police and warring factions meant casualties were commonplace. 
you knew there might be stray bullets, you knew there might be problems, you knew the police might come at virtually any time, just looking for uh, drug uh, traders, etc. And they would also search around with civilians. All those things condition the relationship of the people with the police. Particularly in Rio de Janeiro, violence and criminality have escalated to a point so unique and unprecedented that no other city in the world has experienced it. Only Bogota and Medellin in Colombia had something similar. Even though improvements have been made through so-called police pacification programs, known by their acronym UPP, which has pushed out many of the drug lords and favelas around the city, the culture and governance imposed by the drug trade and the police response continues to erode trust between residents and law enforcement. The favelas are seen as arenas of war, the enemy's territory, which has to be eliminated. Populations of the favelas are seen as the civil enemy. The state, therefore, doesn't see favela residents as having citizen rights. That's Jailson de Suze Silva, director of the favela observatory. We met him in the last podcast. He's a very vocal critic of the state's past and present policies towards favela narco-traffic. Jailson grew up in Mare, a favela in Rio's north zone. His favela observatory tries to influence public policy through research and consultancy. Instead of looking at it as a social problem, the drug trade is looked at as a moralistic one. More than criminalizing residents in favelas, it demonizes them, and it creates the license to kill. The effects of this are infinitely more perverse than the drug trade itself. So our problem is that young people are involved in violence, not only as victims, but as perpetrators. And the victims of violence are predominantly young, poor, black residents of the favelas living in the outskirts of cities around Brazil. And that is possibly one of the reasons why the response to this situation has been so slow, because the main casualties of violence are poor and living in favelas. But the 1990s weren't all doom and gloom for the favelas. In that decade, a response from figures normally on the edge of Brazil's cultural scene challenged the stereotype and stigma that came with being from a favela. One of these characters was Celso Ataiji, who founded CUFA. Since then, the organization has grown, both in terms of its reach and function. A CUFA is an institution CUFA is an institution born in Rio de Janeiro and currently located across 27 other states. Its objective is to develop activities for young people living in favelas within a high-level risk environment. However, the needs and the opportunities to expand those plans has largely increased, and with it our focus shifted to the favela communities as a whole and its necessities. Having enlarged its action outside the younger community focus, CUFA was able to delve into other areas like multimedia and sports. And in sports it branches out towards all kinds of activities like basketball or like the Favela Cup, which is a project made up for 64,000 people, including parents and families. The means to which these organizations brought the reclaimed identities of predominantly young black favelados to the foreground of Brazilian public life was without precedent. 
People would say, why are these young people with their weird hair and these glasses and clothes asserting their black aesthetics from the favelas and the periphery? But still, they became mainstream. E assim mesmo sendo, se tornando mainstream. A periferia passou a ser central no Brasil. These NGOs became central to Brazil, which means the peripheries became a central focus for televisions, music, culture, affirmative actions and universities, for governments who started developing these policies for young people in favelas. And this was a very fast-paced change for Brazil. In a matter of 10, 20 years, things changed and some groups became crucial in the process. Afro-reggae and Kufa, who are emblematic groups for this moment. And that is what Sandra defines as underground sociabilities. As the title for the book, defining the phrase underground sociabilities, remains key to understanding the unique qualities of favela environments and the means to which grassroots NGOs increase their power. Underground sociabilities are underground because society builds them in such a way that they are becoming visible, they are shut away, they are hidden away. And what we wanted to do was to go in search of this invisibility and try to understand what is there. And what we found was resilience and resistance to such an environment is widespread and disseminated in the life of the favela. We found experiences of resistance of people struggling to rebuild their lives, to making the most out of a context of tremendous adversity. This is the case especially when they are supported and when psychosocial scaffoldings are present. So one of the most important conclusions of our research is that social policy and structures of care make a tremendous difference. There is a powerful process of socialization in the favelas. The only thing is that they are subterranean, they are covered. So what we aimed was to show what is it that is going on in there? What are the positive changes that are being fostered by the favelas themselves? In turn, these positive forms of socialization, fostered by these NGOs, serve as support networks for people in favelas. You heard Sandra use the term psychosocial scaffolding just a few moments ago. It builds on a foundational concept in psychology of scaffolding, the idea that the care and support someone receives earlier on in their life aids their healthy development. We found that once you provide people with actions and structures of support, they respond and they can change their behavior and they can engage with a more positive future for their lives. And that's what social scaffoldings are about. As someone in the favela told me, if you let people to themselves, they go under because they are alone and they are in the middle of poverty, violence and crime. But if you construct the structures that can hold and support people, they respond very well and they do change their lives. And so how do they do it? How do Afrogan foster the process, these processes? Is by being what we call parents by proxy, which means basically giving you a structure of support and being there for you when you need it. And they take the role of many other institutions, they operate as a state, they operate as schools, they operate as parents. They are multifaceted institutions that bring to favela environments the support that is not there. 
vida, mano Só os verdadeiros sabem o que eu tô falando Já não importa o que eu faço ou o que eu vivo O morro foi a escola que ensinou pro Rodrigo Desde pequenininho que eu conheço a malandragem Também já sei o que é falso ou verdade Eu sei também... Underground Sociabilities was a collaborative effort between UNESCO, Afro-Reggae, Kufa and other Brazilian institutions. The partnerships were thought to be as crucial to the project as the fieldwork and data analysis. But at first, not every partnership was easygoing. When Sandra first approached me, I immediately said no. That's Sao's co-founder of Kufa again. His main concern was that his organization would be merely a subject of the research rather than an engaged partner. We've always had some hesitance towards working with thinkers, intellectuals, or universities, because they see us as hamsters. They are the scientists, and the favelas are always a big laboratory experience. So how can we be part of the process from another position? Universities usually say, each of us has a different type of knowledge, but they never recognize what we know. Whatever we do is crime, and whatever they do is art. But Sandra's team emphasized the complete incorporation of the NGOs, and through a process of dialogue, both parties came to understand each other, and the partnership flourished. I'm happy with the result. I know the history of CUFA, as well as the social movement in favelas, doesn't fit into an Excel sheet page, because it's all about how actions, stories, and how human behaviors can affect your feelings. But if there's a way to categorize what we are, even if by 1%, then this project is a good way to start. It's important and serves as an embryo for other things we need to develop across, not only Rio, but in Brazil and beyond. In some ways, underground sociabilities is a psychologist's response to data-driven development work. The study of poverty tends to be usually focused on numbers, which are very important, hard data, but they tend to leave aside the actual personal and individual trajectories of people who experience poverty. And as soon as you tap into under the surface and you start to listen to life stories and to listen and observe community trajectories, you realize there is a great deal of diversity in the ways in which people experience poverty. Communities of this kind are not homogenous. And social researchers need to pay attention to this diversity. They need to pay attention to this differences. A part of the research centered on the favela life world. This involved going twice a week for six months to favelas like Madureira, Cantagallo, and City of God to obtain views on life in a particular favela and how residents conceptualized and interacted with the city beyond its confines. Cristal Moniz de Arellão lecturer of psychology at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, known as UFRJ, and research assistant on the project, remembers one such session in Cantagallo. I was in the in, inside of a house of a person, and she was just, you know, 
washing her clothes and talking to me just as a neighbor. <laughs> so it was something nice. We were really inside people's lives and trying to talk to them, not in a native way, but in a close way. What is interesting is how um, Sandra could hear so, so many different voices at the same time as she heard the inhabitants of favelas. Angela Huda, professor of psychology at UFRJ and academic consultant on underground sociabilities. She also interviewed the people who are in contact with them from the government, from the police, and so she had a quite interesting and, and complex view of the whole situation. Uh, the importance of her study is very big because... That's Sylvia Hamas again. She just switched complex. to English. Afro Raggy and Kufan and other groups, they became, became characters of Brazil in the last two decades. But there has never been before so systematized study to describe them and uh, to let them talk. And something that he produced was a kind of register, a record. There is some place where I can find what kind of groups they, they are. And it's more important that she not only described Afro-Reggae and Kufa, she described a field in Brazil, a sector of the Brazilian society about whom we have spoken so few in the last years. Reports like underground sociabilities help expose issues around favelas. So we favela dwellers are more influential in the city, and this is important for the reconstruction of public policy. It indicates that we're increasing our power. Another big contribution of the research is that now this is registered. This is a proposal for, for action, and it can be taken away to other places, not only in Brazil. And this, I think, is a, a good possibility of being more influential. And for Sandra, one of the most important lessons came from the interview subjects themselves. Once you study communities such as the ones we studied in Rio, communities that are exposed to a great deal of human suffering, of experiences of loss, of pain, caused by social deprivation, caused by discrimination, called by racism, by social inequality, you learn a great deal from these people. You learn how they uh, build resilience, you learn how they build resistance, and you learn how they have this tremendous capacity to stand up and continue their lives. The research on underground sociabilities has taught us that well beyond the representations of violence and crime, of poverty and uh, segregation that surround favela environments, we find a very proud and rich collective intelligence living in the edges of the city. And to recognize the life, the culture, and the capacity for survival of favela communities is a most necessary task.
For those who have worked with Sandra the longest, Underground Sociabilities is just one of many contributions Sandra has made to the Brazilian public sphere. Sandra é considerada como uma pessoa. Sandra is hailed as one of the deepest thinkers of social psychology. Nas questões relacionadas à psicologia e psicologia social. Padrinho Goreski is a professor at the Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul in Brazil and was a close colleague of Sandra. He notes that Sandra's work on social representations was particularly groundbreaking. Em grande evidência, foi ela praticamente que introduziu. She was practically responsible for the introduction of social representation studies in Brazil, in its broader sense. She has an immense influence, especially because her work in social psychology would be defined as critical. Social representations is a major theoretical perspective in the field of social psychology. It examines collective beliefs and practices. Sandra's interest centered around how new ideas are generated into this public sphere. One of Sandra's fundamental characteristics is her consistent regard for maintaining a link between theory and form, which is, on its own, a very complex matter. As one reads her books, it's easy to see how these ideas influence her work. An example and one very important text for me which she never stopped working on, is her doctoral thesis in regards to the public sphere. In it, she seeks to understand what the Brazilian public is, why it's different from other spheres, and what should be learned from it in order to grow and transform. I think Sandra takes the best of Europe and tries to translate it so we can have it here in Brazil. The new generation is Sandra's generation. It is influential here because she's an authority. She's a reference. That was Sandra Jovchelovich, Jackie Priego Hernandez, and a host of other influential voices from Rio de Janeiro. Now we look further into Brazil's strong history of participatory art movements with Paul Heritage, Professor of Drama and Performance and Director of the charity People's Palace Project at Queen Mary University of London. Paul met up with Cheryl at a circus school in Rio to discuss art and its role in social development. moment we're here in Cresce and Viver, the circus company in Praça Onze in the centre of Rio. We are doing a project with them which we've been developing over some time as a sort of a part of the journey towards Rio 2016. I've been looking at uh, how some of the lessons from London 2012 could be shared back with Rio particularly at the level of the sort of participatory social engagement transformation agenda. And with the British Council, who have actually have a programme called Transform, we're working with Cressair and Viver to pair them with 
one of the UK's premier arts companies, Grey Eye. Grey Eye is a company that's been going for 30 years, based in the East End of London in Hackney. And it is a company of people with disability, deaf and with disability, and they were very much involved in the Paralympic cultural programme. Indeed, Jenny Seeley, who's the director of Grey Eye, directed the opening of the Paralympic Games. Uh, they've got a certain social technology of the arts, which is around working with, with artists with disability. Cresser and Vivea clearly have very uh, strong programme of engagement with all sorts of different uh, communities and uh, young people particularly at risk. So this is a classic sort of project that we'd be interested in. We have two companies and a set of artists from both uh, countries who've got their own specialities. Because in a knowledge transfer, or knowledge exchange, in any partnership, in any relationship, you have to have some sense of similarity and some sense of difference. <laughs> there has to be a heterogeneity as well as a homogeneity. And I think that Chris Hermvivet and Grey Eyes say some really essentials on the function of art and what art can do in its transformative possibilities. Everything we do is really around knowledge exchange. And it's interesting because when we started, I would say it was much more about us bringing certain ideas from the UK to Brazil, particularly in prisons, because I worked a long time in the Brazilian prison system here using very much the uh, work I've been doing in the UK. But certainly in more recent years, it's been much more a two-way exchange. And I would have to say probably we've been more been exchanging ideas we've been bringing from Brazil to the UK than the other way around. Brazil, as we know, suffers and has uh, been characterised by a lot of the social crises that uh, are so dominant here. But at the same time, it has a, a, an incredibly strong participatory arts tradition. So the work has been characterised by, by looking at those two things together. What happens when you have such extremities or uh, a range of uh, social crises that come about through poverty and social exclusion and the violence that goes with them? when that's married, if you like, with that participatory arts tradition. So the type of things that have been talked about, about how the arts can be more inclusive, how can we have more access to them, uh, are things that are in the lifeblood, the DNA of Brazil. They, that's, that's not something they need to invent. In the 90s, if you like, one of my things I was fascinated with be, was really to discover those organisations that I still work with, the one here, Crescer and Vivea, where we are today, but also Afro Reggae, Nostromojo, Kufa, and a whole range of different uh, organizations across the country that come up from those communities themselves that have uh, uh, built their work uh, from, if you like, from the inside out rather than the model that we're more used to in the UK, which is one of the artists going into a community. So those, those tragedies existed, but I've been very interested in how that's been told and it turned into public cultural policy. I think there are incredible positive human qualities around socialisation that art is, is produced by. I do think that the strength of their life stories has often produced some uh, extraordinary responses and telling of those. But I think what's more interesting is the way in which the everydayness of those lives is the way in which some of that adversity has been changed. Um, Luis Eduardo Suarez 
and MV Bill, who's a rapper and very much associated with Kufa, and Celso Altaigi, they wrote a book together about poverty, which was about what is poverty, the, 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 the smell of it, the taste of it, the detail of it, and in which Luz Eduardo wrote a chapter which was a sort of sociological, anthropological, political analysis. Celso wrote one, and M.V. Bill wrote one, and they, each chapter was one after the other, one after the other, Cabeza de Porco. And it was fascinating to see how this, it was about the detail of that diversity. And that's what art can do. Uh, it can enable a sort of wider understanding of the very detail of what that loss or that suffering or that violence is. And unless we can understand the detail, we can't really find those solutions because it will always be generalised. So, of course, art does that, and it does and will produce these extraordinary responses. Mosque Moorhall, us from the hillside, which is the theatre company that's been going since nearly 30 years, about to celebrate its 30 years. And they, very differently from Kufra and Afrorege, don't do work about that adversity. It's not work about the drug trade, whereas Afro-Regius very much uh, found the language of the narco-traffic and found a way of sort of almost inverting it and playing it for its own thing and building up a dialogue of mediation within their communities. Most of them don't talk to the drug traffickers. They do classical work. <laughs> they do Shakespeare. They do 19th century novels. They do a very... It's a very different... A totally different way in which they've approached it. But one of the extraordinary things is, of course, that adversity, those lives they lead. The moment those young people speak Shakespeare, uh, it is from a different subject position than most of our actors. They bring two things to it. One, they bring an understanding of uh, socialisation of the actor. Some of them have been in the company since they were six and are now 30. So they have a, a way of relating to each other. The actor who comes in to do a three-week rehearsal period and then do a performance with all their technique in the world is never going to have that sort of socialisation on stage within their art. But secondly, if you've rehearsed it with the shootouts going on outside and if you've lost your brother to the drug traffic or you've, you've lost you've, uh, your mother has suffered X, Y and Z, that those things brought to that poetry are sometimes a different intensity. And what's one of the things most extraordinary to see is how they need the words that some of that classical work is the only way to express the depth and extremities of those lives they lead. And in that exchange, I think we all discover something new about those classical texts, the need for the words, the need for that poetry, the need for that music or that rhythm. The need to express, the need to do, comes, if you like, from that adversity. It doesn't mean it has to have a direct relationship of describing it. That was Paul Heritage. To hear more from Paul about art in Rio's periphery, accompanied by pictures of the tumbling and rope-climbing antics from Christère et Vivert, visit the podcast page on lsereviewofbooks.com. That's all for this episode. Next time, for the third and final episode in the series, Cheryl Brumley will talk to professors at the LSE and the University of Sao Paulo about topics ranging from leftist politics, oil wealth and poverty in Brazil. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley. For a full list of the music and sound used in this podcast, and for reviews of the latest social science books, visit lscreviewofbooks.com. I'm Amy Mullett. Until next time.